Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. And this week we have a very special show. We're going to be talking about some of the biggest stories of the summer with some of my favorite critics and journalists. First, we're going to talk about one of the summer's biggest shows, Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. It's won so many Emmys. It's gotten such great reviews. And yet there are things about it that people, you know, we like to argue about. Does the show do this well? Does it do it poorly? And of course, there are things the show does better than any other show on TV, like make you feel like you're going to die. After that, we're going to be talking about the summer movie season that has been, because believe it or not, it's almost over. We're going to be talking about the big movies that we loved, the smaller movies that we loved, and some stuff that you should check out if you still have the time. I'm going to be joined by some of my favorite critics on both discussions, so please stick around. I think you're going to have a good time. We're going to start today by talking about The Handmaid's Tale's second season. This remains one of my favorite shows, but saying it's one of my favorite shows always makes people look at me weird. So we're going to be talking about the highs and lows of season two. Don't worry, we're going to be talking very high level early on. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you won't be. And we'll give you a warning when we delve into spoilers about the season's final handful of episodes. I'm joined by two of my favorite TV critics. Melanie McFarland of Salon is on the line in Seattle. Hello, Melanie. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. And Sonia Soraya of Vanity Fair is in New York. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Todd. So I want to just kind of start a very high level discussion to about season two. And I just want to know how you felt about it, like how you thought the season went and uh, just kind of, you know, how you felt about it compared to season one and, and just your ideal version of the show. Um, Sonia, I guess I'll start with you. I liked season two until I didn't, which is weird because I was really on board with a lot of what it, I felt that it was trying to do. I think it started some interesting arcs, and I'm not sure if it ended them in a way that makes sense, I guess, So, which is more finale specific. But, but as a whole, like as a journey, I was... Uh, I was on board. I actually thought that the pregnancy plotline for June was really interesting because of how it was something that like she wanted emotionally, um, but also like was clearly this like a uh, toll on her body in a way that they I think they showed in, in interesting ways. And then I liked Serena's arc, too. But there was also a little bit of confusion, I think. I had the feeling that episode 11, which is for those who have seen the show, it's the one that's basically just June by herself for a full episode. I won't, that's all I say. I'll say without spoiling more. That episode felt to me like the season finale. And then they had two more episodes that it was like they'd forgotten they had to do. I feel like if those two episodes had been the first two episodes of season three, I would have felt more kindly toward them because they set up some story arcs that I guess they're going to pay off later. But it was it was a weird way to structure a season of television. Melanie, I'm wondering how you felt about season two as a whole. I agree. It was I think it was a beautifully rendered season, but I also, after a point, I just couldn't even watch it anymore. It was incredibly painful to watch. Now, that said, when I've said things have been painful to watch in the past, it's been for completely different reasons. I think that this particular series, not only does it inadvertently speak to our time in a way that makes it very painful because a lot of it feels real and it feels urgent. It feels like the, a possible dystopia, which I can't believe I'm saying this. But I also think that the portrayals within it were, um, particularly of the relationships, were incredible this season. Um, I really like the fact that um, Yvonne Strahovski's character, Serena Joy, was made into someone who realizes, you know, and is kind of making these halting steps to realizing that she needs to create a grudging alliance if she's going to survive and not with her husband, because obviously that is a is a system that's going to have to fall at some point. How whether it falls in her favor or or not, I guess remains to be seen. But that that portrayal and in um, Strahovski's portrayal in particular, I think, was the strongest element in my book. Besides, of course, Elizabeth Moss just doing an amazing job in that particular episode that you were talking about. Todd Holly really was an opportunity for you know just the close-in shots on her expression. She really there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. Um, in those scenes in the present, but she did so much in terms of forwarding the story. But I agree with you. It could have, the season could have ended there and it could have ended really beautifully, but they have to, I guess, give an in, inroad to season two. And I will add, the only other thing I'll add is that this just was a season where they really had to do um, world building. 
Um, there was a lot of world building to do this season. And I think that may have gotten in these stories way a little bit. Yeah, I have kind of had the feeling that this has been a, a better season than season one, especially the first 11 episodes. But in a way that sort of made the show a lot tougher to watch. Like season one, some of the things that were bad about it were like, they would play a pop song and you'd see handmaids wandering around and it would be like this weird triumphant moment that totally clashed with the show. But at the same time, it reminded you, you were watching a television show and this wasn't actually reality. And this season was so much more muted. There was less music. There was less like triumphalism. It was really in the heads of those characters in a way that could become very claustrophobic and a way that I appreciated. But I think the sense that I got from a lot of viewers that it was just had become too much sort of stemmed from that creative choice. So it's the weird, it's the rare choice where like, like taking criticisms that a show has gotten has made the show uh, tougher to watch for a lot of people. Sony, did you have that feeling of um, this show now has just become too much to watch and sort of what can you attribute that to in yourself? I did not get to that point exactly, but I think this feels like a Netflix season in that it feels like a kind of bloated and meandering season that's sort of like getting from point A to point B because because I agree with you. Like the first few episodes, I found myself thinking like, oh, this is really strong. Like this is pointing in some really interesting and important directions. And it's kind of interesting that they like – they sort of fizzled. It, it, feel, it felt like that they fizzled. And, and so maybe as a result, it didn't quite feel as um, – I don't know. It didn't quite feel as shocking to me, maybe because I, I was having trouble following where everything was going. I think that they're also a little too precious with some of the characters. I sometimes wonder, like, why, like, why is Emily still alive? Like, it, it's weird that, that, like, so many people we've seen throughout the series have died, but then, like, certain of our characters are kind of immune, which is sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a classic sort of, like, it's like a Walking Dead problem, too. I found myself wondering about it. Like, it's, it seems like there's, like, these little halos of immunity. I do feel, though, that the show has really weaponized that in a way that other TV shows haven't. Like, if you survive on this show, that's, like, worse than death in some ways. That's kind of one of the things I like about the fact that the protagonists don't die. But that does sort of bring up an interesting point that Melanie and I have been talking about, which was part of the problem with turning this novel into a long-running TV series is there's basically only two things that can happen to June, which is... She can continue to live in Gilead and suffer or she can escape, whether she escapes via death or she escapes to Canada. And that weighed really heavily over season two in a way that ultimately worked for me but made very clear that that can't be the case forever. And uh, Melanie, I'm wondering how you think the show balanced the idea of can June ever escape with, you know, the reality of we're watching a TV show. So, no, she she probably can't. You know, honestly, that's that's kind of the the huge question, right? I mean, one of the main problems that I've had with what I had with this season, there there comes a point where if a protagonist has been in, in this in this particular um, dystopia in in this uh, in this structure, there have been so many harsh punishments on so many characters for less. They're just characters that you don't necessarily hear anything about, like looking outside and watching executions happen in the street, but always to the Marthas and the handmaids and, you know, the, the other people in other houses. So after a point, it becomes silly, these excuses that um, the Waterfords are able to make to keep Offred alive. And the 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 amount that she pushes and doesn't get a whole lot, I mean, relative to other, what you see happening to other Marthas and other handmaids, doesn't get a whole lot of pushback until you kind of see consequences for another character near the end of the season. So that whole idea of, you know, survival, I guess, you know, as Sonia was saying, it becomes... Essentially, it becomes the same conundrum every other show has. Does she live or die? It, particularly in this series, it becomes silly given the way that this season ends because I stop believing in the stakes. Mm. Um, and, that's, and that's part, at least for that character. Um, part of the reason that I'm kind of having a raised eyebrow from the last episode was like, 
Well, really, I mean, what can can people just get away with anything here if there happen to be an Emmy Award winning actress or somebody who's pretty well known and liked? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it was left. I was left asking myself um, at the, as the season ended. I do want to ask: Do you think there's uh, do you think there's a way out of that problem? Like, is there, is this just so inherent to the show that they're just always going to have to deal with it? They're going to have to deal with it, but I, I but I think that what happens is that they've reached a point where it becomes less of a kind of transcendent drama and just another TV show. When we were talking about it, Sonia, before before we started recording, I kind of likened it to. This is a, I'm sad to say this, but I remember a long time ago watching some sort of behind-the-scenes special about the Planet of the Apes phenomenon before the new movies. And they were talking about the Planet of the Apes TV series, and they said one of the reasons that the series had to end is that the writers realized they couldn't keep having the humans escape every single week and having the apes kind of say like, well, you crazy humans, we're throwing (laughs) you back in again and don't do it again. And I think if we start thinking in those terms, then the impact of this series diminishes significantly. And I think, at least from my perspective, that's the problem that they're going to have to solve. So can they write themselves out of it? I mean, anything's possible, but it's a real problem now. And the viewer has to be noticing at this point. Something that strikes me, you know, that strikes me based on what you both of you were just saying is that like throughout this season, June tries to escape so many times. Like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, maybe if you individually broke them down, it wouldn't be as many as it felt like. But she is in flux and kind of pushing away and coming back so many times. I'm a little torn about it because in some ways it's realistic. It's realistic that someone who is in a hellscape would be constantly trying to escape and constantly thrown back into prison, especially if, and this is the saving grace of this entire season, especially if she has something they want, which is a uh, viable uh, fetus. But the way that they continue to hold on to um, and and flesh out the world in Gilead that June lives in means no matter how much she tries to escape, there's always this pull back to the the setting, the the existing sets and actors and crew that they have in that house. And I felt that that was what I was struggling with, like that. It's like, yeah, I know, like Joseph Fiennes is doing something interesting, and I like Ivan Strahovski too, but like. Are we really going to put this character in a situation where she's just constantly trying to escape and constantly back in this very weird dynamic? And the whole season, you know, they kind of play with this idea that like like towards the end, Serena says that she doesn't want June to be around as soon as the baby is born. So even after being weaned. So then there again, there's this push like it's like, oh, now she's she's banished again. No, she's back again. No, she's banished again. She's she's running away. No, she's back again. At some point, this loses stakes at some point this loses me as a viewer i think they know that i think that they are very aware of that to me i feel the big decision that season two made that will pay dividends is they developed serena joy as a character who can basically step in and be uh you know what elizabeth moss was on Mad Men, the second protagonist who can step into storylines and have her own drive and things like that and that sort of i think if they wanted to do a thing where June eventually escapes or she's on the run for a season or whatever, like they could go back to the Waterford house via Serena. And I think that was a smart call. I don't know if they're going to do that, but like if I were the one there, you know, telling the story that that's, that would be the reason I was, I was making those choices. So I, I do feel like that was kind of a smart thing. The other thing that I think they're setting up is this idea of the rebellion, the resistance, the, the coming revolution that gets a lot of play in season two. Um, it's canonical to the book because in the book we know that Gilead falls. It just happens way off page. So like I, that is an interesting angle and I'm wondering uh, – I guess I'll start with you, Sonia. I'm wondering what you think about like the idea of playing up the various factions trying to bring down Gilead. I can locate some of those, the, those um, threads of resistance but to me they, they were kind of barely coherent and not really – they didn't really feel like real threats to Gilead. You know, there's uh, there's different people that seem to have in, in Gilead, within Gilead and, and outside of Gilead too, that seem to have uh, a lot of anger and, and are directing it towards Gilead. But no one's participating. I mean, I guess 
you know, in late in the in the first season, but not still midway through. Um, I'm sorry, in the second season, this uh, Canadian, uh, I guess he's an American diplomat in Canada, like something like that. And he approaches Serena and is like, defect. And she's like, no. And I was like, why wouldn't like, I guess maybe it's a setup that like in the future she's going to defect and they have to have that meeting at some point early on. But I just kept wondering like when the breaking point was going to be for all of these people. And that is the most the most powerful thing about season two is that you get Serena Joy, who is like a has been until now a like willing architect in her own oppression. You get her to the point where she's beginning to like seriously question this world and not because she thinks it's like bad as much as she be realizing that like she's threatened in it, you know. But I didn't, I mean, I kind of didn't believe it. And and I didn't believe, I mean, I had a lot of trouble with Bradley Whitford's character, um, who I think that they sort of make as part of the resistance too. And I just didn't buy him. So yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I didn't think that they did enough with that for me to understand how the, se- the season was going. Well, I, so let me jump ahead. in really quickly here and say, I think that one of the things that I won't say obligated, but I'm curious to see how the kind of echoes of Me Too will pop up this next season. We don't know what the status of, you know, this entire kind of emotional tenor that the, you know, everything that's going on in the country right now, how that's going to show up next season. What I will say is that they telegraphed a few moods in that direction by making the seeds of the resistance within Gilead, at least the ones that seem to be more successful, um, or at least have a chance um, run by women. And I know that's we can get into that a little bit as we talk into about the finale. But to talk about um, Serena Joy, I am glad that they, again, that they developed her this season. But I do think, going back to what you were saying, Sonia, that meeting was necessary both in terms of giving them some sort of a structural hook for whenever she does defect. But I also think that what they consciously did last season and this season is show how this was someone who not only was an architect but did it as with an understanding that she would be a shadow power, mm-hmm. that she would be someone who would essentially be like the shadow government through her very powerful husband. And that for her would, you know, would make the situation um, of women being property in Gilead tenable. But as we saw this season, she realized that that's not the case. And so I think that makes it a little bit more believable that she now is looking at the larger picture instead of just what's in it for her. But, you know, I, I do think that just in terms of looking at those seeds of resistance, seeing how the series has been so co-opted, um, not only by the the political idea of resistance in America, but also by women, I think it's almost inevitable that they're going to be playing upon that for season three. And as you say, Todd, if Gilead's going to fall, particularly for this season, and if they decided that they were going to bring the story to a close, I think it would only be appropriate for them to have some sort of collaboration, not only between the forces without in terms of Little America and in Canada and other nations, but particularly within. And um, the only way that that could really happen, it can't obviously just be offered. It has to have powers within that um, that we're starting to see. But I also think that they were kind of clumsily thrown in at the 11th hour, um, at least a portion of them. So there's that. Mm. I'm interested in the idea of it turning more toward the idea of the resistance and seeing that through June's eyes, because everything is about her limited perspective to a degree. So if she turns toward that sort of path, um, as the finale hints she might be without spoiling, you know, I think that that is a, that is a viable way forward. I don't know how well it will work, but it's like at least a plan. (laughs) Uh, But I do want to, before we talk about the finale in specific, I do want to just briefly touch on before this season, the Handmaid's Tale showrunner Bruce Miller was talking about how one of the criticisms of season one that stuck with him was the show didn't really talk about race in a way that the book did a little bit more. Uh, in the book, at least, uh, for the most part, there's been a, a genocide of non-white people like in the nation of Gilead. And the show doesn't do that. And it was criticized in season one for not touching on race really at all. Season two did more, but I say it did more in the sense that it did like once and that was more than season one. And I'm wondering, you know, do you think this is a thing the show can talk about intelligently? Does it need to, to be a good show? And, and like, 
how do you feel about the way it deals with issues of race? Yeah. For me, in watching it, particularly in season one, I think that I want to say that it seemed to me that the writers and the showrunner wanted to kind of infer how Gilead thought about race almost the same way. I hope I'm not getting into trouble here. But so right now there's a big kind of schism happening in the evangelical Christian community, right? I mean, there's this whole idea and it, a lot of it is revolving on, around race and politics. And you're hearing a lot about a lot of um, members of color leaving their churches because of the politics being espoused. And so to me, when I'm looking at Gilead, and if that is an element of kind of extremist Judeo-Christian values running Gilead, then it makes sense to me that it would be inferred that, of course, the people in power would all be white with like one black person off to the side with no lines. Um, What I found interesting is that it's almost this portrayal of the myth of post-racial America. One of the things I noticed is that none of the black characters, none of the major black characters have black spouses or partners. Mm. Um, You know, even June's, uh, the people who save her as part of the resistance, that's an interracial family. Now, you know, I'm I'm in an interracial marriage, but so on one hand, yay. But on the other hand, when you see these, when you see these couples, they're assimilated into culture as opposed to seeing that these, that people of color exist as a, as a major population, it's almost like, oh, look, there's there's an Asian handmaid. Like, oh, look, there's one there, that kind of thing. I do think that it's significant that the um, characters that create the most kind of um, impact this season are people of color. You know, the person who was a suicide bomber, that was a, that was a handmaid who was a person of color. You know, you look at um, the Marthas and, you know, and, you know, even looking at um, the characters in Canada, the significant storylines outside of Junes mostly involve people of color. So so that's something. It's almost like they want to infer it as opposed to explicitly discussing what happened. And the last thing I'll say is that I found it very interesting that one of the main officers, I don't think he was a top commander, who was able to get his wife pregnant was a black man. So that's kind of like, oh, that's that's interesting. And it also adds this element of when you see Fred, when I saw Fred kind of looking jealously when he was talking about, you know, here's this, oh, look, he's he's able to have a baby with his wife and Fred looking with envy. To me, that took on a different resonance. But I say say, say this as a black woman who's watching this show. I, uh, I, I do want to just pivot off something you said. I think this show portrays a kind of white supremacy really well. I don't know if it knows it's doing it, which is the kind that I grew up with in the evangelical church, which is like, okay, we love people of color as long as they act just like white evangelical people. And like, I think that The Handmaid's Tale gets into that really well. I don't think, like, I think when it talks about issues beyond that, it sort of, it feels like it has no idea what it's doing. But Sonia, I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, um, it's it's really it's super interesting hearing both of your thoughts on this because um, I had I have no understanding of the current evangelical um, politics, um, but I always took the I always took the racial makeup of The Handmaid's Tale to be kind of like the racial makeup of Star Trek, which is like it's just integrated. Don't worry about it. Like we're in the future. And and the reason that that worked for me was because, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is this kind of canonical sci-fi work where that there were sometimes these very utopian leaps made. Um, And of course, this is a dystopia. But I think that that's actually one of the things that's interesting about it to me is that like, 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 I almost feel like the and, and I think that this is problematic, but bear with me for a second. I think that the the stance of the show is something like sexism or misogyny uh, unites all of us. <laughs> and and it's a vector that can be isolated from racism, from uh, classism potentially, although actually classism does come into play. Um, so maybe it's just a vector that can be separated from racism. And I don't know if that's true, but it's interesting because I think that it makes Gilead into this this thing that isn't necessarily American that isn't necessarily evangelical or, or Christian, even though I, I I agree with everything you guys are saying, it it's fu- sort of fundamentally happens. I mean, sort of it fundamentally sort of has to be. I think that, Todd, you are right. It is a form of, of white supremacy in a way because 
everything that I just said implies that you can separate sexism from racism. And I don't think you can. Like, I'm not offended by the show exactly because I do think that they're doing something interesting in kind of muting that discussion. But it's 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 convenient for someone to mute that, right? And to just be like, we're just going to focus on gender. And it's like, well, those things historically we know are like very closely linked. Can I jump in really <clears throat> quickly here and just simply say like, when I say assimilation, that, by the way, is that is a form of white supremacy, absolutely, just in terms of right. making sure that the people of color that you do see that have some sort of power are abs- are absolutely in line with what the what the power structure is in Gilead, referring again to when you see these and they're all and they're all male, like all all the all the people of color who have any power within that structure are, are male, um, obviously. But, you know, again, they're all off on the sidelines. And I, you know, <laughs> that's either one of those lovely things that Hulu is getting away with in terms of like the myth of colorblind casting or intentional. Um, you know, I would rather see the truth of that and kind of recognize it um, than have it ham-fistedly handled, to, to be honest. Um but uh, but yes, I mean, absolutely. The linking of misogyny and racism is um, by inferring it. I don't know that people are necessarily picking it up, but um, but I definitely was getting it. it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a Gilead is a white place on purpose. I think uh, you you mentioning that assimilation makes me think of the fears that the uh, separated children from their parents will be sent off to white evangelical adoptive families and sort of raised in that tradition instead and like that. That is a very present real fear in our world that I think The Handmaid's Tale reflects. The finale of the show, obviously we've talked around how it did some things we didn't quite like. For me, the very last shot of Elizabeth Moss staring into the camera looking like a superhero is the main reason that the finale didn't quite work for me. But uh, I want to hear each of your takes just very quickly on the finale. We'll start with you, Sonia. Um, I thought it was a disaster. I wish... Uh, like, I wish I got what they were trying to accomplish there, but it was it was a mis- it feels like a massive mistake to me um, because I think that it ended it it ends basically every arc that we've been following with like whether, you know, what resistance means, what survival means, what like her relationship to her daughter means and like kind of erases a lot of the assumptions that I thought that we were making. Like, why does she, why does she give Holly Nicole uh, the name Nicole again, which is what Serena calls her? Um, Why doesn't she just go? Like, what does she think she's going to accomplish staying in this like repressive state? It was, it was perplexing. Melanie, what did you think of the finale? You know, again, I'm going to go back to the, um, the Planet of the Eights problem. I think it's part of that um, where you have this person who keeps on going back. And once again, was able to get away with it once? And somehow we're going to believe that she's going to be able to get away with it again. You also have a problem where you have a character who is now um, and writer and, and a story where you're kind of telegraphing the moves. I'm going to go back to what I was saying about season three kind of you know, reflecting this whole idea of, you know, female power and feminism uprising. So, you know, on the one hand, I guess that turning the tides will kind of get rid of the gloom and doom. I can't watch this kind of show feeling of the season. But on the other hand, it seems very obvious and frankly, beneath the show, uh, just in terms of the quality of what we've seen leading up to it. I think it was very, very ham-fisted and clumsy. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, people can find your work on Salon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Sonia. People can find your work at Vanity Fair. Thank you for having me. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a new podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show. That's me, Arthur Brooks, and I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm making a new podcast with Vox Media. Now, as president of AEI, that's a Washington think tank, I see bitter disagreement all the time. And it's terrible. We need some way to disagree, not less, but better. So this is a series that looks at the art of disagreement. The first episode is out July 12th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most of all, subscribe right now.
So summer movie season is basically over. I know it doesn't seem that way since it's middle the middle of July, but we've got Mission Impossible Fallout coming. And that's really about it for big summer releases. So I wanted to uh, join with some of my favorite writers about movies and entertainment to talk about the summer movie season that has been. So I am joined by Karen Hahn, a Vox contributor. Hi, Karen. Hi. And I'm also joined by Soraya McDonald of The Undefeated. Hi, Soraya. Hello. So one of the things that I think has been interesting this summer is it's felt to me like there are fewer gigantic movies than there have been in the past couple of years. Like certainly there's been your Infinity Wars, your Jurassic Worlds, some of these movies that are big, but you know, the last couple of years it's felt like there has been one every week and this year it's been a little more spaced out. And I'm wondering if you sort of prefer that or, or how you felt about the, the quality of the big comic book and otherwise blockbusters this year. Um, Karen, how, how have you sort of been feeling about the state of the blockbuster in summer 2018? Well, I should probably admit right off the bat that I still have not seen Infinity War, but I have seen the other big Marvel movie, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I really liked. I feel like my assessment of uh, summer movies so far has been very uh, subjective. I've only really kind of paid attention to the ones I've been interested in. So in that sense, I guess I haven't been too disappointed, especially because Mission Impossible, as you said, is still coming out. And I think that's the big one that I'm really looking forward to this year. Soraya, how have you been feeling about the the bigger movies this year? Have there been any that have particularly stood out to you as really well done? You know, it's funny because I haven't really tapped into the big movies of the summer this year either. I have sort of a choice of what I'm going to look at you know, based on whether or not I think it's interesting, because I'm also writing about television and books and theater and a bunch of other things. And so the movies that have really been interesting for me this summer that have either already come out or are coming out have been sort of the smaller ones. I I think that that is also true for me. Like I I have liked Incredibles 2, which I think we're going to come back to because I know that was a favorite of yours, Karen. But I, I think that this year has really been a great one for you know, smaller movies for indie movies. We've seen things like First Reformed, the uh, Paul Schrader movie starring Ethan Hawke, and the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? They've sort of crossed over into the mainstream in a way that smaller movies don't always do in the summer. I'm curious, Soraya, when you say that you had uh, some smaller movies you've really connected to this summer, what are some of the ones that you're you're thinking about that you, you thought were enjoyable? So I think the one that I would say right off the bat that everybody's probably talking about still is Boots Riley's feature film debut, Sorry to Bother You, which stars Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson and is just incredibly funny and strange <laughs> And just a screed against capitalism uh, that I deeply enjoyed. <laughs> uh, and there have, you know, there have been a couple of films that have kind of been foreshadowing our impending doom if we let billionaires take over the world. You know, we see that in Ready Player One um, and even in Hotel Artemis, which nobody saw. <laughs> Uh, where, you know, where everything has been privatized and monetized and branded. But Boots manages to really communicate his feelings and his attitudes about this in this way that is really entertaining and it's fun to look at. It's just full of bright colors and energy. And the funny thing is, is that as much as the aesthetics of Sorry to Bother You draw you into the film... Uh, I think Boots is also kind of making a comment about how much we get distracted by, ooh, look, pretty shiny thing, and then lose sort of the substance of it. I loved Sorry to Bother You, and I think one of the things that I really loved about it was I've seen some complaints about the second half of the movie that it kind of shifts into a different genre, I'll say, without um, spoiling the movie for people, hopefully. But that's what I loved about it, is the way that it took kind of the way the first half of the movie built this um, sort of near-future sci-fi critique of capitalism and then just went whole hog with it. It was... I thought really brilliant and and hilarious and actually kind of scary. Like, and I mean that in the sense of like a horror movie where you're like scared of a thing that makes you jump out of your seat, not in the sense that like uh, our impending doom is scary because it is. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for me, sorry to bother you, really is one of the films of the summer. 
and, and Karen, do you have some of these smaller films that you've really been impressed by? Yeah, um, I will add on and say I also really loved Sorry to Bother You. And I feel like one of the things that's been very interesting about it is that now that it's out, I've seen a lot of kind of very polar opposite reactions to it, which is always fun for any movie, but especially here because it doesn't seem like anyone's trying to pile on or say anything unnecessary about it. But the discussion has been very um, productive. There have been two smaller movies that I've really liked, mostly because they do feel very summery. Um, I was a big fan of uh, Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade and Kristen Mozell's uh, Skate Kitchen, both of them centering on um, a group or a kid in still kind of growing up in their teenage years. And both of them talking about, I guess, the experience of growing up and getting through certain periods of your adolescence. Uh, Skate Kitchen especially was um, very impressive to me. And I didn't realize that the Skate Kitchen actually is a young collective of female skateboarders. When I was watching the film, I just assumed that it had been something that was created for the movie. But the Skate Kitchen is an actual skating collective. Uh, And they're all very impressive as amateur actors. And it's just young women who seem very poised despite the fact that they're in both in terms of film and in terms of skateboarding uh, fields that are not necessarily friendly to them. One of the things I think has been interesting this year, and, and, and Soraya, I'm, I'm going to throw this to you because you mentioned that you uh, have been watching a lot of TV, theater, things like that. One of the things I found interesting about the movies this year is the way they feel like a response to our current moment in history well, we all know that like movies have such a long production timeline that most of these were not, you know, made as a response to our current uh, moment in history, like television often is. And I'm wondering if like that, that level of distance to some degree allows a movie like Sorry to Bother You or allows a movie like, like First Reformed, which is like about global climate change on some levels, like if it allows those movies more breathing room in a way that like a TV show that has to be of the moment doesn't get. And I'm wondering what you think about that, that idea, Sarai. I definitely think that these movies benefit from having that longer lead time so that they're not obligated to comment directly on the problems that we are sort of currently facing and can't seem to ever tear our eyes away from. Um, When I interviewed Boots for Sorry to Bother You, one of the things that he was saying is that, you know, the reason this movie still feels so current is because these problems have been sort of deeply entrenched for years and years and years and years. (laughs) These are not new problems. Uh, When it comes to, you know, whether you have workers who are basically living at factories and living these horrible, miserable lives where they want to commit suicide, like Foxconn, you know, that dates back to what, like the first iteration of the iPhone that came out. And so it's just that these things are are continuing. One of the other sort of storylines this year has been the real arrival of Netflix as a purveyor of films uh, in a way that it wasn't Uh, in the past. Like certainly they've had great movies like Mudbound from last year was one of my favorite movies of the year. And that was on Netflix. But this year it really feels like Netflix has has come out in a way in that regard, Um, especially with their recent romantic comedy set it off, which is all my Twitter feed could talk about. Karen, I know that you are somebody who watches more Netflix movies than I do, which is to say you watch any Netflix <laughs> movies. Uh, how, how do you kind of feel about the debate over the idea of Netflix being like bad for cinema? They put out Okja, so I automatically have to give them points and they have a very large amount of goodwill from me that they're, I guess, not running out, but I have a very long leash in terms of them. But I do feel like they might be... Um, using a strategy that I would say is akin to throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. They have a lot of movies, and I feel like we've gotten lucky in that the ones that we mostly hear about are those that are good to great. Because I liked Set It Up, and I also watched um, Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter this weekend, which actually made me cry. (laughs) But I think those aren't necessarily indicating that Netflix has a good movie stable, but rather exceptions in an extremely larger, um, I guess, test group. Because I also watched a bunch of the teen movies that they'd put out over the last year, and I can't say that any of them were really that that great. 
<laughs> Tell me a little more about uh, White-tailed Deer Hunter since it is on Netflix, and, and you had mentioned it to me as one that you you were going to check out, and I had never heard of it, which seems like an abrogation of duty in my job. But but what what's that one about? Well, in fairness, I feel like the Netflix has buried several of the releases that they have. Um, but Legacy of White-tailed Deer Hunter. It stars Josh Brolin and Danny McBride. Uh, Josh Brolin is starring as this a white-tailed deer hunter, and he's taking his son out to shoot his first to hunt his first white-tailed deer. And the kind of gimmick there is that he is a famous hunter, and he has his own show and like line of endorsements of products. And part of the reason that he's taking his son out is to bond with him, but it's also to try to make a movie or an episode of his show about that particular experience. So there's a lot of it that's kind of try. There's nothing. There's only a few things in it that you may not have seen before in other father son movies. But Josh Brolin, I feel like, has kind of shown himself to be a pretty good comic actor recently, and it capitalizes on that. Plus, he does manage to wring some pathos out of um, the father son relationship. Obviously, the big story at the box office every year is superhero movies, kind of this uh, never-ending tide of them. And, and every time people say, I think we've hit superhero fatigue, then, the, you know, an Infinity War or a Black Panther comes out and breaks all of the box office records. And we say, oh, I guess not. <laughs> Soraya, have you seen a lot of these superhero movies this year? Uh, and, and kind of how have you felt about them? Uh, I'll just put my own cards on the table. I really loved uh, Black Panther and I liked Incredibles 2 a lot. And then the others I could really take or leave. But I'm wondering sort of how you feel about them, Soraya. So I am one of those people who like very easily gets annoyed by superhero movies when they're bad. Uh, And so, I mean, I have so many bones to pick with the DC Universe and with Zack Snyder um, and just having to sit through just terrible Superman movies or terrible Batman (laughs) movies. I have a little bit more tolerance for Marvel, but I will say that I loved Black Panther and it is the only superhero movie that I have seen this year. I just, I found it to be so intelligent and so different from what the genre usually offers and usually frustrates me about, you know, what usually frustrates me about the genre, whether it's that you have these really sort of one or two dimensional female characters or, you know, with Batman versus Superman, you've got these guys fighting over what exactly, and it's in the dark. And, you know, I think there were just technically thematically, you know, the performances, the music, like everything really coalesced in Black Panther to just deliver this wonderful film And one of the things about that that I think is sort of the gift and the curse of Black Panther is that it's now raised, it's raised the stakes for other superhero movies because you want them to be just as good. You know, there's sort of an argument that's like, well, if Ryan Coogler could do this, why can't the rest of you? I absolutely remember when I saw Infinity War, uh, you heard those familiar, uh, the sound of the drums, that's the familiar sound from the score of Black Panther, and everybody in my theater cheered, and the characters from Black Panther got like three lines. <laughs> you could feel the air like leak out of the room. Oh <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, uh, I think that Marvel had no idea how much that movie was, was going to just change the game. Uh, but one thing I, I think that's great about Black Panther is it does use these big themes, whether they're political or social or just you know even character themes and ant-man and the wasp which i know you like karen is sort of the opposite of that so uh sell me on sell me on the virtues of using superhero movies to tell just very small comedic stories if you will karen sure um i do feel like just to qualify my superhero movie opinions i have to out myself as a dc fan I don't think those movies are necessarily good, but I am, I think, the only person in my friends group who would go even a little bit out of their way to say, I liked it for XYZ reasons. So I guess take my Marvel opinions with a grain of salt. But I liked Ant-Man and the Wasp basically as, I guess, a summer movie. Um, I admired Black Panther really greatly for the same reasons that uh, Soraya mentioned. But I tend to like Marvel when they do the kind of weird one-offs, which is what Ant-Man and the Wasp is. It's basically just a movie in which there's X problem, they do Y to solve it, and the stakes are pretty much zero. There's not too much that's going on. It's just fun. It's just about having a good time. Even to the point that the villains 
aren't a hundred percent villains. Everyone is sympathetic in one way or another. It's just having fun, which I think is the most kind of epitomized by the fact that both Ant-Man movies feature the truly insane Michael Pena asides where he kind of recaps a small bit of what has occurred off screen prior to each movie. And it's just like a drunk history segment. And if I had to boil down why I like the Ant-Man movies to a single factor, I would kind of point to those segments as saying that's what they are and that's why I like them. I do have to say that it was uh, well over 100 degrees in Los Angeles this weekend as we're recording this. I just felt like if I was at a theater, Ant-Man and the Wasp is the perfect, it is over 100 degrees yeah. <laughs> and I just need to sit in air conditioning. Like it's that kind of a movie. Um, one other big story at the box office in the last couple of years has been the rise of horror as a real moneymaker. You know, we had things like Get Out and It last year. This year we've had A Quiet Place and Hereditary is not a hit at that level, but has made a lot of money for what's ultimately a weird indie movie. Horror is my favorite genre, so I'm so happy to see it it doing well. I'm so happy to see so many quality horror movies out there. Uh, Karen, uh, are are you a horror movie person? I'm I'm putting you on the spot with this, but have you enjoyed any of these recent horror films? (laughs) Yeah, I pretty much liked all of them. I'll admit I'm, I'm a fairly recent horror convert. Um, When I was very young, I accidentally stumbled across a feature on TV that was just talking about all these old famous Asian horror movies. And I was young enough that it scarred me to the point that I didn't watch any horror movies until maybe somewhere in the last five years. But since then, I've gotten to like them a lot. I really liked Hereditary. I know people can't stop talking about that one, especially because of kind of the left turn that it takes at the end which didn't quite work for me, but which I, it wasn't enough to turn me off of the movie entirely. I think on the note of horror movies as well as kind of smaller movies, I'd also tout uh, Upgrade from this summer, uh, one of the new Bloomhouse movies. It, it's very much like watching a series of video game quick time events happen, but in the most fun filmic way possible. It's very kind of out there. It's very just committed to the bit. And I admire it very greatly for that. Just very briefly, what's that one about? Um, So that one's about this guy who, in uh, an accident and a carjacking, living in this futuristic world, he becomes paralyzed, completely paralyzed, until this kind of tech mogul, who's a very thinly veiled parody of Elon Musk, comes along and tells him that he can put an implant in his spine that will basically control his body for him. And as soon as the implant starts uh, taking control, it turns out that it can communicate with the guy basically by speaking to him through his mind. And they both start uh, going on this quest for vengeance. Hereditary is another one that, like Sorry to Bother You, is a movie that kind of shifts genres in its last act in a way that a lot of people don't like, but that I love. <laughs> um, like it, I, I saw it a second time and I think it's my favorite movie of the year so far. Um, and it, it, there's been some good stuff out this year, but I do think one of the reasons horror is, is connecting is there is this feeling, I think on all sides of the political aisle that we're doomed. And I think that horror like is the one genre that sort of, sort of taps into that. And uh, Soraya, I'm wondering like, have you seen, you mentioned that earlier and I don't know that we, we, delved into it as much so like what are some of these other movies you're seeing that kind of explore that theme of what are we going to do how are we going to get out of this are we going to get out of this so earlier i mentioned hotel artemis which was this film that opened up against oceans eight um starring sterling k brown and brian tyree henry as his brother uh which is basically set in future los angeles where you guys have run out of water (laughs) And it's become this huge commodity and people are, people are rioting. And so it's set during the night of this riot and takes place in this highly sort of futuristic hospital for criminals uh, where they can be healed with uh, nanobites. Um, But they just have to not kill each other while they're in the hospital. And of course, of course, they're going to kill each other. But, you know, like the ending of that movie suggests, I guess, some amount of hope. Um, I think what it's trying to say is that maybe we need to all um, kind of face our fears uh, to, and break out of our bubbles a bit. Because, like, the woman who's basically been running this hospital has, like, horrible agoraphobia. Um 
And so she's just deeply scared to leave. And by the end of it, you know, that's kind of her saving grace is that she's decided to leave this hospital behind, which is full of violent killers and robbers and everything else and decide to deal with sort of the scariness that is happening in the outside world where there's this huge riot over water. (laughs) One of the things that I think has been a little lost at the box office this summer uh, or just in general this summer is I haven't seen a lot of really good comedies or even just like adequate comedies. I went and saw the uh, basketball comedy Uncle Drew and I I really enjoyed it. Like it's a it's a movie about uh, that stars the basketball player Kyrie Irving as an old man. And like, it feels like it feels like it was expanded from an SNL sketch, which it basically was because it was, I was going to say, yeah. Commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, but I, I realized the reason I liked it so much is like, I didn't have to think about anything. Beyond, <laughs> I didn't have to think about anything beyond like, uh, you know, this is just a dumb kind of conceit for a movie and I'm having a lot of fun. So I'm wondering, uh, and I'll, I'll start with you, Karen, what's uh, what is a movie this summer that has just made you laugh, uh, even if it was maybe not the world's finest film? Oh, gosh, that's tough. I feel like I haven't really laughed that much this year, which is a sad statement in and of itself. Tag got a couple of laughs out of me. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but I didn't not have a good time watching it. Um, It's a movie starring John Hamm, Jake Johnson, Jeremy Renner, Hannibal Burris as this group of friends who've been playing tag pretty much since they were kids. And now that they're adults, they only do it for a month out of the year. And the central conceit is that it's based on a real story. And the conceit of the movie is that they have one friend, um, Jeremy Renner, who's never been tagged the entire time they've been playing and is now getting married and is using that as an excuse to retire from the game with a quote unquote perfect record. And there's not much heft to it, but there are some bits that are just kind of demented in how determined these guys get to tag each other that did get a chuckle out of me. Soraya, are there any movies that have made you laugh uh, in the last couple of months? You know, I was just thinking, I wish Heartbeats Loud, which starred Kiersey Clemens and Nick Offerman, um, had been easier to find because like, I think that would have been interesting had more people sort of been able to connect with it but now like now that I think about it there there hasn't really been a whole lot of laughter lately which maybe also is you know reflective of our sort of collective anxiety and inability to just sort of disappear into something lighthearted and mindless which now you've basically sold me on Uncle Drew (laughs) I will say Uncle Drew is so stupid, but I had a lot of fun with it. It's just corny old man jokes for like <laughs> two hours. Great. I love it. <laughs> All right. So I, I did want to, Karen, I did want to talk uh, Incredibles 2 with you for a little bit because uh, I really did like it. I feel like it wasn't at the level of the first one, but I think the first one is one of the best movies ever made. So, uh, you know, it was never going to be. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, what were your feelings on it? Because it it's been a huge, huge hit but also uh, there's been a lot of kind of uh, discussion around it and it's, you know, it's philosophies and all of that. Um, What are your feelings on that film? Um, I do feel like I have to take a moment to say, as soon as um, I finished talking about Tag, I started kicking myself for not mentioning Incredibles 2 as something that made me laugh because that entire sequence um, in which Jack-Jack, the super baby, fights a raccoon in the backyard had me in stitches the entire time. Yeah, I loved Incredibles 2. I 100% agree with you in that I don't think anything could have measured up to the first movie, in part because I attach a huge sentimental value to it and also because it just objectively is kind of a perfect movie. I'm not sure how I feel about the philosophy angle of it, I guess, just because Brad Bird's philosophy is not something that I'd necessarily consider to the extent that a lot of the internet seems to until I started seeing think pieces pop up. This maybe speaks poorly to me, but I always thought of his take on things as a little more simplistic, as basically just being, if we're good to each other, then that in itself will better the world that we live in, as opposed to anything inherently Randian, which I think is the popular um, adjective to apply to his work. But I I love the movie overall. I thought that it it was maybe a little less kid-friendly than the first one, because there were some moments in it that genuinely felt 
like they had been lifted from a thriller or a horror movie for me that made me anxious that I immediately wondered how I would feel about it if I'd watched it 10 years ago. But of course, or and of course, rather, there's also the Michael Giacchino score, which is still absolutely incredible. Not to overuse that word, but... <laughs> yeah, I was I, I was so nervous about that film heading into it. And then in the very first scene, uh, there's a there's a, a supervillain called the Underminer who, who digs drills through the earth and, like, the banks fall into the holes he leaves behind. And he shouted, consider yourself undermined. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm going to have a good time with this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do agree that, like, Brad Bird has this weird thing where, um, and he said this in an interview, like, he read a lot of Ayn Rand when he was a teenager. And now, like, as an adult, he recognizes those things within himself, but he's also trying to fight against them. All of his movies are, like like caught between like, I am the greatest alive and I should be celebrated. And then also like, but no, that's not actually true. And I find that tension interesting. I think a lot of people find it disturbing, however. Yeah. Um, it's a weird and, dichotomy, uh, especially because he seems to be going out of his way to say that it's not Randian philosophy. Like he said that in interviews as well as when he responds to people on Twitter where he's like, no, that's nonsense. <laughs> that's not what that is. <laughs> Well, we're we're kind of heading into the end of the discussion here. I said that my favorite movie of the year so far is Hereditary, but I, I could have said any number of other things because it has been a good year for movies and we're just a little over halfway done. So uh, let me ask each of you what your favorite movie of the year so far is and if you know how people can find it, uh, like if it's still in theaters or if it's on Netflix or whatever, that, that would be great. But But Karen, what has been your favorite movie of 2018 so far? This is a, probably a boring answer, but I think I would put it at a tie between Incredibles 2 and First Reformed. Incredibles 2, I believe, is still in theaters. First, First Reformed definitely is not anymore, but hopefully we'll be seeing a DVD release at some point soon. Yeah, that one uh, is in one theater in L.A. as we record this. Sure. <laughs> By the time this comes out, it's gone. So, Raya, what has been your favorite movie of 2018 so far? Well, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say... Whitney, which is the new Whitney Houston documentary from Kevin McDonald. And I mean, it is, I suppose you could say it is a depressing film. It will not make you feel good <laughs> to watch it. Kevin McDonald really uh, is just persistent when it comes to nudging Whitney's family members over and over and over again. Um, and just kind of being patient with them because they, you know, historically have been very reticent to speak and they still are in this. Like you can see that with Bobby Brown, who like just refuses to even engage in any sort of conversation about Whitney's drug addiction. But I was astonished that like her estate participated and sort of authorized this. And I was like, oh God, this is just going to be like, hey, geography, we're not going to learn anything new about her. And it's not going to sort of deal with the the really complicated and ugly aspects of her life. But it does that really well. And I think what was probably most impressive to me is that Kevin McDonald was actually able to get Sissy Houston to finally open up a bit by basically taking her to the church where, you know, she was choir director and, and sort of massaging her ego a little bit and saying, you know, tell me about what this was like when you were basically the mistress of this place. And I, I find that very impressive because there's at some at one point in this movie, um, someone says this family is full of secrets. And I found myself connecting with them in a way that I think... I feel like there, and it's not in all Black families, but in a lot of them, there is this imperative to sort of close ranks and not let your dirty laundry show and don't tell anyone about all the deep, dark, awful things that have taken place. And Kevin was able to push past that wall like way more than I ever would have expected from anyone. And certainly from you know, a white Scottish director. <laughs> uh, Whitney is also in theaters right now. Uh, Soraya, thank you for joining us. Your, your work can be found at The Undefeated. Thank you. And Karen, thank you for joining us. And uh, we can find your work at Vox. Thank you so much for having me. 
I Think You're Interesting is not yet a biographical documentary about my life, but I keep trying to make it one. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of the show. The producer of I Think You're Interesting is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio is Nisha Kerwa. The sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week's episode was recorded all over the map in the Vox Media Studios in New York and here at the Rebel Talk Network in L.A. and also in Seattle and all over the place. So there were a lot of people who pulled it together. Our recording engineers were Ernie Hurtado and Griffin Tanner. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We really appreciate it. If you do, it helps us get the word out about the show and helps us get great guests. You can email me at todd at vox.com. You can email the show at ityi.podcast at vox.com. That's itye.podcast at vox.com. And you can tweet at me at tvoti to vote. We're going to be back next week with our very first musician on the show, somebody who goes around the country touring and playing her music for everybody. Uh, It's Nico Case. I can't be more excited to have her coming on the show. And until then, under his eye, praise be. (laughs) 